Why Jeremiah? One might ask. The right response might be, why not? Is this any less the Word of the living God? Why would we think this portion or any other portion of Scripture odd to be heralded as the Word of God? But perhaps the question is less a prideful indictment than more a humble inquiry. The sheep might with a mouthful of grass from this very pasture be asking, just wondering, may I ask, why you led us to this pasture in particular? In that case, yes, you may. And the answer is, I'm simply an under-shepherd. I don't presume to have any special knowledge about which particular portion of the Word of God would be best for us at this moment. But I know that it takes the whole Word to make whole Christians. Because of limitations in time, the elders' aim and method is simple. For you to have a balanced diet... If we just started preaching straight through, some of you would hear nothing but the Pentateuch during your lifetime. And so, we go from the old to new, from poetry to prose, from epistle to prophet, from historical to wisdom, a balanced diet. That being said, perhaps there is no other portion of holy writ more neglected today than the prophets. Oh, they're certainly cherry-picked. But if you take time to survey the whole tree, you will realize just how very little fruit has been taken from this tree. The prophets contain much bitter medicine that would be good for our souls but we've been fed only the most sugary portions thereof. For example, if a poll was taken in the average even jellyfish church, I have no doubt that if you asked for them to quote portions from Jeremiah, chapter 29 and verse 11 would be the most cited and very likely near the only cited portion of this book. And you will see just how askance that is to the overarching message of Jeremiah as we go through this book. There's likely no genre of Scripture more neglected and none more needed. It's not only because our diets have been imbalanced, but because the American church is sick. And it is the prophets who shout the cure. Repentance. The whole of God's Word is enduringly relevant. It is Foolish for the church to talk about being relevant. God is relevant. (laughs) Who He is, what He's done. But whenever the church has apostatized, whenever she's committed adultery and broken covenant with her betrothed, it's a time to read Jeremiah and not Philippians. Because the dire need of the hour is to mourn and not rejoice. Here we have not only medicine, but we have a lot of it. If I were to ask you what's the longest book of the Bible, sure, many of you had the Psalms pop into your mind. 
And by chapter count, if that's how we're measuring it, that's correct. But you remember, though it doesn't quite happen this way with the Psalms because they stood as compositions individually, but the chapter divisions as you see them throughout the rest of your Bible were inserted by men. If we, if we count God's inspired words, the Psalms fall to third place. Being topped by Genesis in second and Jeremiah as the longest book in the Bible. Not only much medicine, it is potent medicine. The American church is riddled with cancer and this is potent chemo. Should we take it? But are we not as a fellowship enjoying a time of health? I believe so. But we are fooling ourselves if we think we're innocent and we're immune from what ails the church. And so my hope is not only contrition and repentance for where we have been compliant, And don't misunderstand this phrase, but that we would have a prophetic voice. By that I mean simply, you'll see that the main aim of the prophet was not to speak into the future and, and speak of unknown things, but to speak as God's prosecuting covenant attorney showing where covenant has been violated. That we would have a prophetic voice in that sense, a faithful voice to our God's Word. And an age where nonsense pervades the professing church. So let's dive in. The, the book begins with a larger than normal introduction, fittingly so, to this prophet. We're told both the who and the when of Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah? Verse 1, he was the son of one Hilkiah, a priest. This was a prophet who came from a priestly lineage. This is likely not to be confused with the Hilkiah who was high priest during the reign of Josiah. Because this Hilkiah lived in Anathoth. This is a town about three miles northeast of Jerusalem in Benjamin. Most importantly, you're told that this Jeremiah is the one to whom the word of Yahweh came, verse 2. Other details may prove clarifying, they may be helpful, but this is the sole credential it matters not what else Jeremiah might have attached to his name. If this is void, he is no prophet of Yahweh. When did he act as a prophet? Verses 2 through 3. At the bitter end. Three of the last ruling kings of Judah are mentioned here. Two with shorter reigns that come in between are omitted as they only had a brief reign of three months, but the span of Jeremiah's ministry deals with the last days of these ruling kings of Judah. His ministry begins during the bright reign of Josiah, but that was as a beam piercing a sky full of dark and ominous clouds, heavy with God's wrath and judgment, soon to fall upon Israel. God's providence is astounding. Derek Kidner comments, Josiah the reformer, Jehoiakim the tyrant, Zedekiah the weathercock touched three extremes of royal character that created changes in the spiritual climate which were fully as violent as those of the political scene. His ministry would extend over four decades of the darkest and hardest hours of the nation's existence. 
He's often known as the weeping prophet. Not without reason. But I, I'm afraid, though we see Jeremiah's, in this instance, in his, his protesting of, of God's call on his life, though we see, we see moments like this in Jeremiah's life, I don't think the title does justice to the strength, the perseverance, the tenacity that Jeremiah demonstrates by God's grace in the midst of such dark hours. He, he was a weeping prophet, but we shouldn't altogether think of him as a weepy prophet. And concerning his calling easily overlooked, but most emphasizes that God called Jeremiah. Verse 5, God formed him. God knew him. God consecrated. God appointed Jeremiah. Although God called and appointed Aaron and his sons as priest, He called and appointed David and his progeny as kings, those offices, as ordained by God indeed, were passed on in a hereditary manner. But the prophet was immediately called by God. And that was necessary according to his function. Again, they acted as God's prosecuting attorneys, showing how Israel had violated the covenant that they made at Sinai. They showed how king, priest, and people had violated God's law. And whereas king and priest were to minister according to the law, the prophet ministered God's law. They were to minister according to God's word. The prophet ministered God's word. The immediacy of their calling relates to the immediacy of their ministry. They speak the very words of God. God formed this prophet in the womb. It wasn't a blob of cells, potentially Jeremiah, that God formed. It was Jeremiah God formed in the womb. Personhood begins in the womb and God is Lord of it. Woe to those who seek to destroy what God forms. This language is echoed in chapter 18 where concerning the nation, God speaks of them as His clay. And He's the potter. That's the same kind of imagery that's conjured up by the word formed here. God may do with His clay as He wishes. We have no right to mess with God's clay. Now in this instance, I believe it's clear that the forming relates to the purpose for which Jeremiah is being called. When God means to write a book, He crafts the pen that He's going to use to write it so that the slant, the, the boldness of the font, the calligraphy matches the message he intends to convey. Whenever Jeremiah sounds like Jeremiah, and whenever Isaiah sounds like Isaiah, and Daniel like Daniel, and so forth, it's no argument against divine inspiration. Because whenever God wants to say what He says through Jeremiah, Jeremiah is how He wanted to say it. Warfield, that Princeton giant known as the theologian of inspiration, wrote, As light passes through the colored glass of a cathedral window, we are told, is light from heaven 
but it's stained by the tints of the glass through which it passes. So any word of God which is passed through the mind and soul of a man must come out discolored by the personality through which it is given and just to that degree ceases to be the pure word of God. But what if this personality has itself been formed by God? into precisely the personality it is for the express purpose of communicating the Word, uh, through the Word, just the coloring which it gives. What if the colors of the stained glass window have been designed by the architect for the express purpose of giving to the light that floods the cathedral precisely the tone and quality it receives from them? What if the Word of God that comes to His people is framed by God into the Word it is precisely by means of the qualities of the men formed by Him for the purpose through which it is given? When we think of God, the Lord, giving by His Spirit a body of authoritative Scriptures to His people, we must remember that He is the God of providence and of grace, as well as of revelation and inspiration, and that He holds all the lines of preparation as fully under His direction as He does the specific operation, which we call technically in the narrow sense by the name inspiration. He crafted Jeremiah to craft this book to speak His Word to us. Providence was indeed at play. He knew Jeremiah before he formed him. He knew Jeremiah before he formed him and he, he consecrated him before he was born. This word for know is that word that's used of that intimate knowledge between a husband and a wife. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's used of covenant love and knowledge of another as God says to Israel, you only have I known among all the peoples of the earth. Amos 3. Because God had set apart Jeremiah to be a prophet in this way, It follows naturally that this forming of him would be according to this purpose. And, and if, he's, if he's orchestrating all of this, if he, he's doing this before Jer he, he's, he's intended this before Jeremiah was born, before he even formed Jeremiah in the womb, if he's Lord of all this, what else must he be Lord of? What else must he be doing? What else must he know? And the answer has to be, Everything. This assumes absolute sovereignty over all the events, over all of his life, over everything that's happening. And one way you see this is in his calling as he's appointed to be a prophet to the nations. Yahweh is no tribal deity. He's not limited by the nation's borders. He sets the borders of the nations. How was he called to be a prophet to the nations? Well, chapters 46 through 51 of this book are known as Jeremiah's oracle to the nations. Therein he will speak to Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Hazor, Elam. And consider this, because what we see throughout the scope of Revelation, of Holy Scripture is that revelation and redemption go together. God gives His Word to His people. Corinthians tells us that the things of God are spiritually understood. The natural man doesn't comprehend them. God's Word is for God's people. And yet, it speaks to the nations. God's people have been far too apologetic in this thinking that God's Word is just meant for us. And so whenever we dialogue with unbelievers in the spheres of politics and science and things of this nature, we need to find some supposed, imaginary, neutral ground where we can converse with them in these regards. There are no neutral grounds. As soon as you think you've stepped onto one, you've stepped onto their turf and you're living an imaginary world that they're trying to conjure up and play in. God is Lord of all. He's the ultimate authority. 
Let us show how any other worldview collapses in on itself as a lie. And how God's truth is the truth. So let the people of God unashamedly say, God says. And whenever they respond, I don't believe in your God. Reply something like Jeremiah does, or God does to Jeremiah here. Doesn't matter. Our task, church, is not to win arguments. It's to be faithful. And so yes, as you're dialoguing any kind of way that you can leverage the truth of science as you understand it to be God's truth, or the truth of logic and reason, or any of these things, any of these tools that you can use to win a righteous argument, do so, but never at the expense of declaring the ultimate authority by which all things are judged. And where He has spoken most clearly in His holy word. Now this call as it comes to Jeremiah and time is met with an excuse. Verse 6, I'm young, I'm inexperienced, and can you, can you not recall Moses in that series of excuses that he offered up to Yahweh? And one of them being, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And to which God replied, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Some excuses seem, such excuses seem humble but they are riddled with pride. God formed him. God consecrated him. He knew him before he formed him. Is he not the Lord with all authority? Is He not sovereign? Is He not wise? And you presume to tell Him? Not me. You must have made some mistake. In reply, God does not give Jeremiah a pep talk. It's not here that we find Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah, I have wonderful plans for your life. There's not some kind of pep talk involved here such that Yahweh builds up Jeremiah's confidence by causing Jeremiah, oh look how I formed you. You are, you're adequate. You can do this. God doesn't argue the points. They may very well be true. They're simply irrelevant. Doesn't matter. There is no excuse for disobedience to the Word of God. Ever. The appropriate response is that that Eli taught Samuel. Speak, for your servant hears. And in Hebrew, the idea of hearing is obeying. To not obey is to not hear. God basically tells Jeremiah... When I am talking, I am talking. All to whom I send you, to all them you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Where, Lord? Wherever. What, Lord? Whatever. The way that the prophetic call comes to Jeremiah mirrors the Word and its authority 
Uh, this, this call comes to complete a, with complete authority over Jeremiah, and that's the way he is to speak. The word of Yahweh comes with full, total, absolute, complete, comprehensive, exhaustive authority. And now the encouragement comes not as God points Jeremiah to himself and how he's been made. and It comes as Yahweh points Jeremiah to himself. I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh, and thus be not afraid of them. And then he touches his mouth, verse 9, and tells him, I've put my words in your mouth. You remember Isaiah had that burning coal from the altar applied to his lips. The prophet Ezekiel ate the scroll. The prophets of God speak the very words of God. Speaking ultimately of the prophet, Jesus Christ, anticipating him, but also every shadowy figure that further anticipated him that was to come thereafter, God concerning Moses said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Deuteronomy 18.18 18. And that helps you understand how it is that whenever Jeremiah is called as a prophet to the nations, he is set over, verse 10, the nations and the kingdoms. He's set over them because in declaring Yahweh's word, that word has all authority over all. Now an emphasis by both order and number we see that his ministry is largely a negative one. And I mean that it's, it's destructive in what it accomplishes. He has set him over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, and then to build and to plant. So a mixture of agriculture and architectural terms are used to describe his ministry and largely in terms of being a destructive one. But the final note is one of hope. To plant and to build. This book will largely unfold and emphasize the wrath and judgment upon Israel for their covenant infidelity. And yet, it's here that most explicitly God says, I will make a new covenant and I will write my law on their hearts. Now we come to the message of God's messenger. In two instances, the Word of God comes to Jeremiah via a vision. But it's not a vision that he's left to interpret the meaning thereof himself. Oh, I saw a pirate ship. What could that mean? No, it wasn't anything of that sort. God showed him this image, this vision, and then he interpreted the meaning thereof for Jeremiah. The first vision is of an almond branch, verse 11. And, and though we can't say so with any certainty concerning the ancient world, in modern times this area is known for, its, for being a center for almond production. The almond tree was an early greeter of spring, blooming before the other trees. It was watching, as it were, for the approaching spring. It's easy to miss Yahweh's intent in English, but in Hebrew it's undeniable. The word for almond and watching are near identical, being variants one of another. Yahweh's watching over His word, He explains, to perform it. Now, remember why Yahweh has been called His purpose, the emphasis of His ministry, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to plant, and to build. Now listen to Jeremiah 31.28. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them 
to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. Also here, Jer- Jeremiah forty four twenty seven. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. God does not speak idly. What He says He will do, He will do. He watches over His word to perform it. You remember Isaiah, through Isaiah, God said... As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of Yahweh as put in Jeremiah's mouth is for the purpose of plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing, and building up and planting. And the reason it will do those things is because Yahweh is watching over His word to perform it. And the second vision is of this boiling pot precariously tilted away from the north so that it's going to spill to the south. The meaning is that out of the north disaster or the plucking up, the destroying, will come down on Judah, verse 14. Now, as we go through this book, it makes it clear that this, this is done by Babylon. But Babylon lies to the east. Yes, but her root will be by means of advancing north, conquering Assyria. And out of this boiling conquest, she will seethe down upon Judah in the south. Further, I think that in saying all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north anticipates that Judah is going to be oppressed and dominated not just by Babylon, but by Persia, by Greece, by Rome. At Jerusalem's gates, the conqueror erects his throne, verse 15. The gates were the places of business transactions and uh, the places of judgment. You remember whenever... We see Boaz making that, uh, that arrangement concerning the kinsman redeemer. He waits at the gate to do so. That's the place where these kind of things are done. And so what this is ex- expresses is the conqueror having complete control over the economic and justice system and over all the cities of Judah. Further, it's total dominion. And the reason is, verse 16, Israel has forsaken Yahweh. She's rejected her creator and now is worshiping creation. Indeed, worshiping her creation. Rather than the humble joy of acting as image bearers of God to image forth the creator... They want to act as God, creating a God in their image. And yet, this is worse than what we see unfolded in Romans 1. Remember Romans 1, 18-23, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because He's shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man 
and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, how is what is happening here worse than what's described there? Because Israel is not simply suppressing the truth concerning Elohim, God as Creator. She is suppressing and rejecting the One who's revealed Himself to them as their Redeemer. They're not sinning against the light of the sun in the sky as it testifies of God's glory. They are sinning against the light and thunder and fire of Sinai. Here's how Jeremiah will soon speak of their sin. Chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens. At this be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh. For my people. That's the astounding thing. My people. The ones that I redeemed by providing the blood of a lamb from the judgment that they deserve just as well as the Egyptians. My people to whom I've revealed myself and entered into covenant with, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now if Israel's sin and the light of the revelation of Sinai and all that it anticipated was great, greater than the sins and transgressions of the pagans who ignore the light and testimony of nature, how much greater is the sin of the church. In rebelling against the one who has spoken in his only begotten son become flesh. Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now as a contrast to the destruction to come upon Judah, we see Yahweh build up Jeremiah. As a contrast to the disobedience, the evil of forsaking Yahweh, we see Jeremiah commanded to obey. Verse 17, But you, them destroyed, but you built up. Them forsaking, you obeying. This contrast. He calls for Jeremiah to dress himself for work. Perhaps you're more familiar with the King James phrase that still resonates. It's the more strict translation. Gird up thy loins. The images of of them taking the robe and tucking it into the thick belt so as to be prepared for work or war. Rise. And having risen, say everything I command you. Verse 17. Why might he not say everything he's commanded? Fear of man. Now, whereas before he tried to swallow up Jeremiah's fear by the promise of his presence, now he tries to swallow up that, God aims to swallow up that fear by a superior fear. The beginning of wisdom. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. J.A. Thompson comments, A man who fears God 
has also God to fear. The call of the prophet is not one to soft work, so Jeremiah must be dressed accordingly. This isn't a job that one can do in their bathrobe. Remember that the prophet Elijah had a peculiar garb. Whenever King Ahaziah fell through the lattice work and he, he didn't know whether or not he would survive, he sent messengers to inquire of uh, Belzebub, the god of Ekron, as to whether or not he would live. And on their way, they encounter the prophet who tells them, it is, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Belzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And whenever the messengers come back with that, he said, what kind of man was this? And they say, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And just with that description... The king says, that was Elijah the Tishbite. And then, ages later, John the baptizer comes sporting the same look. And Jesus commented on it. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He asked in Matthew 11. A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothes are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Do you see how his dress accorded with his purpose? He's not this reed shaken by the wind. The prophet's dress matched his function. God dresses the prophet and he dresses him in this way. I will make you an iron pillar and bronze walls, a fortified city, so that he might stand against all, all kings, all the priests, all the people. And though he's ready to stand against all, he doesn't stand alone. Verse 19, I am with you. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail because I am with you. God doesn't just make Jeremiah like this to then back up. That should be sufficient. He'll stand. The reason why Jeremiah stands as an iron pillar, as bronze walls, as a fortified city is because Yahweh is with him looking over His Word to perform it. There will be a fight, but Jeremiah will not be alone. A siege will be mounted against Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will fall, and a siege will be mounted against Jeremiah, and Jeremiah won't. And do you see how this testifies against the nation? She will not fall because of superior numbers or military might. The reason she falls is because she does not stand with God. Jeremiah stands alone, and he will stand because he stands with God. Later, in condemnation on those who reject the word of God through His prophets, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. See, this rebellion... 
that we see here reaches its climax whenever they crucified the prophet of Yahweh. Jesus Christ, who did not simply declare the word of Yahweh, but who was Yahweh the Word. This is the expression of the doom on fallen man. For this is the greatest expression of the wickedness of all of our hearts. That God, whenever He makes manifest His greatest act of love, we crucify Him. That whenever God humbles Himself in mercy, we rise up in pride. Our hatred is so great that even whenever God is most loving, we kill Him. But our hate is not greater than God's eternal electing covenant love for those whom He has known eternally. In blessed irony, as Jeremiah was built up so that the kingdom might be brought down, the prophet was brought down so that the kingdom could be built up. God let we sinners crucify the greatest prophet so that we might be saved. Jesus, let's say it this way, Jeremiah was strengthened to suffer God's wrath Excuse me. Jeremiah was strengthened so that he might stand suffering man's wrath. Jesus was strengthened so that he might bear God's wrath. He was built up by the Spirit in the garden that he might be suspended upon the cross, forsaken by both heaven and earth. And every wretched rebel who upon hearing the word of God in the gospel will repent of their sins and throw themselves in faith on Christ will receive pardon full and free. Here's the word of God concerning His prophet, the Son. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Church, know this, the prophetic office has ceased because God has spoke supremely in His Son, Jesus Christ. But the prophetic word endures. If we are to speak it, we must be dressed accordingly. We must go in faith in God's promise. Being built up by the Spirit as an iron pillar because the onslaught will be brutal. And we can see the enemy forces gathering to silence God's Word. But because Christ was forsaken for us, know this, we never will be. He has promised, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Know that I'm with you always, 
to the end of the age. The one with all authority has spoken to us. And we have been set over the nations to declare the only hope anyone has. And whenever one hears, our task then is to disciple them, teaching them everything He's commanded. Where? Wherever. What? Whatever. Do not fear, for our sovereign Lord is watching over His Word to perform it. And He said He will gather from every tribe, every people, every nation His elect. Speaking particularly of His ministry as an apostle, that is as a prophet, directly commissioned by the risen Christ, Paul said, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You hear a little bit of Jeremiah's hesitation and inadequacy. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. So may we, strengthened and commissioned by the risen Christ, herald and proclaim the crucified Christ, trusting that God will look over His Word. It will accomplish His purpose, either as an aroma from death to death or life to life. Ours is simply the call to be faithful. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father, we are not sufficient. And so we cry as Paul did later in that chapter, our sufficiency is from You. Make us, Father, in Christ as a new creation, make us as You would have us to herald Christ in faith and confidence that You are with us and Your Word will accomplish all Your purpose. And we cry out now that if there's any here who has heard this Word that doesn't know Christ, that it be Your will now, Father, to grant them faith and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.